0: It is a privilege for me to be able to preach the Word of God to you this morning. I'd like to draw your attention this morning for just a moment to the verses that we have chosen as our theme for the 50th anniversary celebration of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 through 24 are taken from what Warren Wiersbe calls the theological heart of the book of Lamentations. And they express the same hope that the patriarch Job did when he said these words Though I slay me, or I'm sorry, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Up on the screen, I have Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, where the prophet says, Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in Him. These three verses compose or constitute a strophe of a poem. Lamentations chapter 3 is actually an acrostic poem, okay, where every three verses of that a chapter, start with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is not really unusual for Hebrew poetry, and if you've been here at Emmanuel for, uh in the recent months, uh, you know that we've come across this before. Psalms 9 and 10 form an alphabetic acrostic. Psalm 25 forms an alphabetic acrostic. And interestingly enough, so does Psalm 34, which is the text I'll be preaching from this morning. In Lamentations chapter 3 though, in verse 23, we have a shocking statement by the prophet Jeremiah. Great is your faithfulness. He was so convinced of the goodness of God that even as he looked out over the ruins of the city of Jerusalem and as he mourned the captivity of the people of Judah, Jeremiah confessed his hope in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. I've been thinking about this idea of the faithfulness of God for several months as we've made plans for today. And it strikes me as providential that Psalm 34 deals with this very theme in a direct way. Now, for those of you who know me, you will not be surprised that I do not step out of, that if I don't step out of my current sermon series entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms, even for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of preaching the 50th anniversary of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, If you were here regularly, you'd know that I mean, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas they're just dates in the calendar. No, they're not. I'm just kidding. But when it comes to preaching, a lot of times I like to continue to preach what I've been preaching, and so I don't we, if we, did, we did Easter like two weeks late one time, I think, and we did, uh, or no, I don't remember. We, we, Christmas in July, we did Christmas in July. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I love to preach the word of God. And This morning we're going to be in Psalm 34 because we begun this series back in August, finding purpose in the Psalms, we've begun preaching through the Psalms, and so here we find ourselves in Psalm 34 today. But Psalm 34 teaches a very important lesson, and I hope that by the time I'm finished, you will know that our hope, our praise, and even life itself are centered on the proven fact of God's faithfulness. So if you've got your Bible, open to Psalm 34. I'd like to read it together in unison, out loud, all 22 verses of the psalm. And then we're going to pray and ask the Lord to help us And then I'm going to preach to you the message that I have prepared for today. Let's begin there in verse 1. Will you read it aloud with me? Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He heard me. And delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand the truth of his word this morning. Dear Lord, we come to you asking that you would meet with us right now. That your spirit would take your word And impress upon our hearts the truth that you are to be trusted in all times that our entire life is to be a life devoted to trusting you because your faithfulness, Lord, is beyond question. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach or that you would use me as your instrument so that your word would go out and that you would be pleased to use it in the hearts and lives of each one here, that your will would be accomplished and we'll praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I said earlier that Psalm 34 is an alphabetic acrostic, much like Lamentations 3, and because of that, it's it's probably much more appropriate to deal with it with respect to themes that are in the the, the psalm rather than trying to outline it according to some sort of formal structure. As I preach through the psalms normally, that's what I'm trying to do. But this psalm makes that a little bit of a challenge. When we look closely at the title of this psalm, we actually see something that I think is very important. It gives us insight into the historical setting of the psalm that we didn't read that uh maybe we should have before verse one but if you look there in your bible he says a psalm of david when he pretended madness before abimelech who drove him away and he departed this this heading this title of the psalm gives us direction it tells us where this psalm came from. And the incident that it refers to is actually found, recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21. We don't have time to go over there and read that today. I wish we did, but then we would be here all day as I preached through 1 Samuel 21 and then back to Psalm 34. You don't want that. So, But let me just kind of summarize what what happened. In 1 Samuel 21, David was serving uh, in Saul's court and Saul, the king, tried to murder David. David escaped. And as he escaped, he fled to the town of Nob. And in the town of Nob he met, or he 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 went to the priest, Abimelech, the priest of the Lord. And, and he got to the tabernacle, and the priest gave him some food. And he also gave him the sword of Goliath. And that's a really key element to the story of what happened. Because from there David left. And he knew he couldn't stay there. And so he left, and he actually left Judah. He left the nation. And he went to a foreign country. The foreign country was the land of the Philistines. And he found himself in the town of Gath. Now, this entire situation is a problem for David. Because David had killed Goliath. You remember that story, right? And he was instrumental in the Philistines being defeated by the Israelites in the battle that followed. And so you can imagine that the Philistines had good reason to want David dead. And all of a sudden, David shows up on their doorstep, by the way, carrying the sword of Goliath, which... The priest had told David there was none like it anywhere in the world. This was a unique instrument of war, and it would not be hard for people to see this on David and say, wait a second, we know who this guy is. In fact, that's exactly what happened. One of the men there in the king's court saw who David was, and he even you know, so helpfully went to the king and said, do you know who this is? This is David he figured it out. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 12 says that David took their words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. That doesn't surprise me at all. Okay. In that moment, surrounded by his enemies, having been chased out of his homeland by another enemy, David took what seemed to be the only way out. He pretended to be insane. He began to to drool and spit on himself and allow the spittle to flow into his beard. He he began scribbling all over the doorposts and the walls and and just acting as if he was out of his mind. It's an incredibly humiliating sight. I actually find the king's response to be quite comical. He basically looks at David and says to his men, I already have plenty of madmen right here I don't need any more can you get rid of this guy and so they sent David away and David with his life intact leaves returns to Judah and he hides out in the caves of Adullam here's a picture for you if you want to get a visual looks like a nice place to have a vacation doesn't it there was David hiding out in the wilderness in a cave about 20 miles southeast of Bethlehem. And we can't know for sure, but I suspect that this was where David wrote Psalm 34. David was a young man, maybe still in his teens at this point. Can't imagine what it must have been like for him, hiding out for his life. Now, some people look at 1 Samuel 21 and they think that David's actions were foolish, were reckless. But the writer in 1 Samuel 21 doesn't really give us any indication one way or the other. He doesn't really mention anything about David praying or consulting the Lord. That's why some people think David made a mistake and was foolish. But Psalm 34 makes it very clear to us that he did. Of course, I can imagine as he's standing there before the king, he didn't have a lot of opportunity to lift his hands to the heaven and cry out for help from the Lord Jehovah, right? That would have been a guaranteed off of his head. What we do know is that within his heart, David cried out to the Lord. In Psalm 34, in verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he heard me. In verse 6, he says, the poor man cried out. Well, who's the poor man? It's David. The poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him. In verse 15, he says that the Lord's ears are open to the cry of the righteous. And then in verse 17, he says they cry out, the Lord hears and delivers them. Whatever else might be said about David's experience among the Philistines, it's very clear that he was desperately crying out to the Lord his God to deliver him from the danger. But how does David describe his condition and the circumstances that he found himself in? This is one of the themes that I want to point out to you this morning in Psalm 34. I call it the psalmist's humiliation. The psalmist's humiliation. This is evident, I think, in a number of verses. In verse 4, he, he speaks of his fears. He says, the Lord has delivered me from all my fears. And the word fears there is a very strong term. It suggests that he was in extreme terror, dread. And wouldn't you be if you were in that circumstance, having run for your life out of the frying pan and into the fire, and you're surrounded by enemies in the city, probably the single city in the whole world that hates you most? Enemies all around. He was in terror. This is a far cry from the the, the young man who stood on the battlefield against Goliath, right? Right? and boldly said that you're defying the name of the Lord and I'm going to destroy you, right? I'm paraphrasing that, by the way. I couldn't remember the way he says it exactly. David calls himself a poor man. I already pointed that out in verse 6. He sees himself as humbled, as suffering affliction, even depressed. He speaks later on in verse 17 and verse 19 of the troubles and the afflictions of the righteous, which are many. It really is amazing to me to think of this young man and all the trials that he faced and all the hardship being humiliated and cast down on his own soul. I think he speaks from experience when he says in verse 18 when he speaks about those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, a crushed spirit. Can you imagine the kind of anxiety that must have gripped David's heart when one of the servants of the king said, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Well, that's not words you want the king of the Philistines to hear when you're standing in front of his throne. They mocked and they laughed him out of the court as a madman. He finds himself in a cave, hiding out, unable to go home. This is why I call this his humiliation, because it's not that he was already humble, it was that he was brought low by the circumstances which were outside of his control. And I think it's important for us to see that. The psalmist was humiliated. He was completely crushed. He was brought down to nothing, being forced to, to act as if he were insane in desperate fear for his life. I don't know how bad your day was yesterday. I imagine it probably wasn't that bad. I could be wrong, I don't want to speak for everyone. David was in a very difficult, very dark time in his life. But I want you to look past the psalmist's humiliation here to see another theme that's brought out in Psalm 34, and that is the Lord's deliverance. The Lord's deliverance is very evident here. Because even while David was crushed, even while he was despairing of his life, his heart, his heart was trusting in the Lord. As he cried out to him for rescue. He talks about this in verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. It's interesting to note, he didn't just deliver him from his enemies. He says, He delivered me from my fears. That suggests, I think very strongly, that God gave him peace in the middle of his enemies. And we've talked about this before. Again, For those of you who are, uh, how do I say this? For those of you who are current EBC people, okay? As you've been going through the Psalms, we've talked about this a lot. About how God doesn't just deliver us from our trials, and doesn't just deliver us from our enemies and our troubles, but he gives us peace in the midst of them. And sometimes he leaves us surrounded by enemies, but he gives us peace. And that's what he does for David. David says, I cried out to the Lord, and he gave me peace. He took away my fear. (laughs) He delivered me from my terror. And again, verse 6, he says, the poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Verse 17, it's the Lord who hears and delivers the righteous out of all their troubles. And again in verse 20, a verse that's very powerful. Of course we see it applied by the, by the gospel writer John to our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, he the Lord guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. David trusted in the Lord. Even when everything around him looked bleak and hopeless, when his only friend in the world, his only friend in the world was Jonathan, King Saul's son. And Jonathan had already done all that he could to try to defuse the situation, to try to turn his father away from from his hatred toward David. Jonathan had did everything he could to allow David to escape and to be freed. But now David was on his own. and There was nothing Jonathan could do. David is without a friend in the world. Unable to do anything to help him. Why? Why? Why does David trust the Lord at that time? I mean, when you look around and there's nothing, there's no reason for hope, there's no escape, there's no way out. This cannot end well. David looks around and humanly speaking, there's just no evidence that this will end well for him. And yet, he trusts the Lord. Why does he do that? Why hold on to hope when everything is falling apart? Well, Here's why. Because David believed in the goodness of God. He believed in the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6, which said, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. How do I know that? Because look at what he said in verse 5. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. The favor of God is seen. And it's reflected in the faces of his people. This is like Moses, right? Who came face to face with Yahweh and his face shone so so brightly that the people of Israel couldn't look at him. He had to put a veil over his face. And I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 who says, but we all, with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. See we look on the Lord. We lift our faces to Him. And David says the man who looks up at the Lord he, we turn our faces to you. We look to Him and then our faces become radiant. <laughs> because the glory of God is reflected in us. Even in the midst of this terrible T- trying circumstance. Something else, At verse 7, David says, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. You have to wonder if that verse was in Elisha's mind. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha and his servant were in the city of Dothan and they were surrounded by the Syrian army. And the servant is terrified. And Elisha assures him, And says, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And he prays. And he prays to God and he says, open his eyes that he may see. And immediately the young man sees the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them, David says. This is What David held on to, the truth that David clung to. How much more blessed, right, is it to believe without seeing? The servant of Elisha saw it. David, I don't think we have any evidence that David saw it with his eyes. But he believed it with his heart. He knew that God was watching over him to protect him and to guard him. David also believed that the Eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry, according to verse 15. In David's view, in his understanding of the way things worked, the Lord was already looking down from heaven over his people, anticipating the trouble and the trials and the circumstances and the difficulties that were going to take place. And since he already knows the danger, guess what? His ear is already attuned to hear the cry. Because he knows the trouble is coming. This is the beauty of what David says. The Lord looks down from heaven on the righteous. And his ears are tuned in to hear their cry. This reminds me of a mother with children. We've all seen this. I've seen my own wife do this. When she may be talking to someone and the children are playing. And and she's having a conversation and she's talking with this person. But if you watch her, you'll see that her eyes are continually moving back to the children. And her, her ear is, is, there's one ear just kind of, you know, just in case something happens. Because she expects to see it before it happens, right? I'm going to see that the kids won't see the danger, I'm going to see it. So she's always, always alert for that. That's the picture we have here. The Lord is always alert for the trouble and the cries of his people. He's a father who watches over his children. And David is so convinced, he's so convinced of this, he says it right there in verse 18 the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Notice what he doesn't say in that verse. He doesn't say the Lord can be called to come near. If you need him, just call and he'll come near. That's not what he says. He says the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. He's already there. You see, when we get into that circumstance and that trial and everything falls apart and it seems like there's no way out, guess what? If you know the Lord, He's already there. He's already there nearby. He's already anticipated it. He knew it was coming. He's already there with you. And his ear is tuned. He's he's watching. He's listening. He's right there. That's what David says. The Lord is near. So when your heart is broken and when your spirit is crushed, your gracious and loving Lord is already at your side. There's a lot more, I'm sure, that I could say about David's confidence in the Lord. But I don't want to miss the third theme that I want to draw out of this psalm for you today. And it's this. It's the lessons learned. And it seems to me, and again, I'm sure if we spent more time here, we could probably draw out a lot more. But it seems to me there are three lessons, three primary, distinct lessons that the psalmist emphasizes here. Especially there in verses 4 through 10, he seems to emphasize this lesson, that the Lord satisfies the desires of his true worshipers. He describes these true worshipers in verses 8 through 10 as those who trust in the Lord, those who fear him, and those who seek the Lord. It's here, by the way, that we read the very well-known line from verse eight: "O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But I have to just stop you for a second, because like so many other places, especially in the Psalms, it's very easy for us to take a phrase or a word or a verse and draw it outside of its context and then misuse it and misunderstand it. You see, this verse is not saying to us, that you should sample the goodness of God to see if it agrees with you. Right? I mean, we do that sometimes. Well, I'll try out that food a little bit and see if I like it. I'll see if there's anything good in there for me. That's not what David is saying. Oh, taste it and see. Just try it out and see if it's good. No, that's not what he's talking about. It's not, I mean, that kind of thinking is... As if you could just try out following the Lord for a bit, you know, and see if there's any benefit to you in it. And if there is, then yeah, keep going. That's not the way this works. That's not the way it works at all. You see, what he's saying here, not take a sampling. He's saying drink deeply of the goodness of God. Savor it. It's paralleled. By the next line in that verse, we we don't want to forget that line. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. The word trust literally means to to find refuge, to seek refuge. It's running for your life from an enemy and running into a strong and fortified tower and locking the door. That's what it means to trust the Lord in verse 8. So guess what? Don't just take a sampling. Drink deeply of the goodness of the Lord. Run to him and seek refuge in him. That's what the psalmist is encouraging us to do. He's not talking about a casual taste. He's talking about totally immersing ourselves in the goodness of God. And so he then Couples that with the next description in the next verse. Fear the Lord, you his saints. This is not the same kind of fear that he talked about in verse 4. The terror and dread of your life. This is, this is reverence and moral fear of the Lord. It's what happens when we compare ourselves with a righteous and holy God. A God who is perfect and without sin. You know what happens... You know what happens when we compare ourselves to someone who is perfect? It's humiliating. It really is. It brings us low. Because it makes us realize not that we're like almost there. I, I like to joke about this. I, I love to play football. I still do. I still enjoy playing football. And uh, once a year I have one a one-game season that I really look forward to every every year. And, uh, and I'm very, very excited about that. But, um, you know, I I think if I work really hard, I mean really hard, right, I think I could try out to, to take Aaron Rodgers' spot on the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> you laugh. You think it's funny. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> See, I don't... That comparison doesn't really work well for me, okay? That doesn't work well for me. I might, I might be able to beat out Bart Starr in a competition, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Even as old as he is, I'm not sure, okay? The truth of the matter is, when we make those kind of comparisons, even in a human scale, we realize how ridiculous it is. what, What happens when we compare ourselves to the perfect and majestic, God of creation, we find that we are nothing, less than nothing. That we are insignificant, that we are, dare I say it, evil and corrupt in our very core. It's not a positive comparison. You don't do that when you want to feel good about yourself. Because when we compare ourselves to the Lord, we fear him. We revere him. Because he is awesome. And we are not. I think the the best thing then is to embrace our humility. I think that's what verse 10 is really talking about here. The young lions. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. The young lion here is being used by David to picture the most vigorous and strongest, fiercest, hunter that there is. And guess what? That fierce, incredibly powerful, physical beast, David says, suffers hunger. He'll go hungry. He's using it as an analogy here for you and I. In our human strength, in our own ability, we will suffer hunger if we choose to live, if we choose to survive on our own, then we will suffer. I know that's not what our world wants to tell us. Our world wants to say, no, if you're the strongest, if you're the cagiest, if you're the best, if you're the smartest, if you can get ahead, then by all means, go for it, because that's all that matters. And that's how you'll survive. Well, no, what? That's not true. You won't survive that way. David says, the young lions, they lack, they suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. I think David means us to recall Psalm 23, verse 1 at this point. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's nothing that I lack. Uh, Not because I'm strong, not because I'm swift, not because I'm agile. I'm I'm really none of those things, aren't I? Not because. (laughs) It has nothing to do with my abilities. When I realize that, and I seek the Lord, that's when he supplies and satisfies every desire. That's the first lesson. We have two more to go. Verses 11 through 18. The next lesson, it builds on the first one. David teaches that the good life is found in doing the will of God. And get this lesson, this is so important. The good life is found in doing the will of God. Now we might be tempted to think otherwise. Surely Adam and Eve were tempted this way, weren't they? In the Garden of Eden. Tempted to believe that true pleasure and that the meaning of life was found in throwing off the restraints, in rejecting and refusing God's commands. But even as a young man, David knew better. And so he speaks to us here as a teacher to his students or maybe more appropriately, as a father to his sons. It's amazing to me, this young man has the wisdom beyond his years. He says, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. There in verse 11. If the first lesson lesson teaches us that the Lord responds to those who fear him, then we need to know what it means to fear him. And that's what he describes for us in verses 12 through 14. He says the desire of the good life here is fulfilled, not by seeking pleasure, but by pursuing peace. This word peace is the word shalom. And it means to be at peace or to be complete. This kind of peace does not come automatically. It must be sought out. It must be pursued. It must be followed after so that it can be obtained. And notice what's, what's involved in seeking and pursuing this peace. By the way, this is not a go-along-to-get-along kind of thing. That's not what David describes here at all in these verses. If you look what he says there in verse 13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. You want to pursue peace? You pursue peace by speaking right and doing right. You have to be diligent in obeying the will of God in order to experience the good life. Because the Lord is inclined to help the righteous. And this is what he goes on to describe, and I really have to work through this quickly. But in verses 15 through 18, this is what he describes for us here. That the Lord is inclined to help the righteous, but that he actively opposes those who practice evil. So choose to follow and do the will of God because that's what it really means to fear him. The final lesson the psalmist closes with is in these last verses, verses 19 through 22. The lesson is this, that the life of a believer is often hard, but the Lord remains faithful. Nobody had to tell David this. He experienced it firsthand. He stood up to Goliath, he killed him, and what did he earn for that? Saul's jealousy and hatred. He went to serve Saul with his music, only to be attacked when the king went into a rage. He fled from his home to the land of his sworn enemies, the Philistines, and he was forced to make a fool of himself in order to escape with his life. He ended up in a cave in the wilderness, surrounded by a bunch of the outcasts of society. He had no illusions about the easy life of a God-fearing man. What he says here in verse 8 of verse 19 is many are the afflictions of the righteous. David was not under illusions here. Don't think don't think that if you choose to trust and follow the Lord that life is going to be easy. David says the afflictions are many, but but he also understood the Lord could be trusted in every circumstance, no matter how desperate. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He says that in verse 20, he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is a really strange verse, and we don't have time to really get into it in great detail here, but I can't imagine that David is speaking of his own experience here. Because David had been on the field of battle. He had seen godly men cut down by their enemies, dying on the field of battle. How could he say that, that God guards the, the bones of the righteous man, they're never broken? And I think what he is saying here, I think what he's saying here is the Lord takes seriously the suffering of His people. He recognizes in verse 18, that the broken heart and the crushed. Spirit, The Lord is not ignorant. He doesn't turn his back on his people. David says, even my bones, even the the most inner part of me, God watches over. God protects. He guards. You should not be afraid, afraid to face danger. You should be confident that the Lord is near. And then he ends the psalm with a contrast between the wicked who are condemned and the servants of the Lord whose souls he redeems. You see, for David, this is simply an expression of his faith in God's economy. Because in God's economy, the righteous, I'm sorry, righteousness and rebellion are both rewarded accordingly. We don't see that in our economy. But in God's economy, that's how it works. Righteousness is rewarded with redemption. Rebellion is rewarded with destruction. If you love sin and you despise righteousness, you will be destroyed by the very thing that you have embraced. But if instead, if you trust in the Lord, if you seek refuge in Him, He will redeem your soul and you will not be condemned That's how he closes the psalm. The very last line, none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. I think of the Apostle Paul and what he wrote in Romans chapter 8 when he said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that if you seek the Lord, if you trust in him, then condemnation is removed It's off the table. It's not even an option anymore. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Choose the Lord and live. Or choose your sin and face the consequences. That's what David is telling us here at the end of the psalm. Now this morning I'd like to end my message where the psalmist began. By inviting you to join in the worship and praise of the Lord. You see, this is not just something we do out of habit or out of tradition at this church. We have 50 years of tradition of praising and worshiping and singing to the Lord, don't we? But that's not why we do it. We sing and we bless the Lord on purpose. David says it here in verse 2. So that the humble, the the poor, the afflicted will hear it and be glad. So we rejoice and we praise the Lord. We magnify the Lord together. We exalt his name because he is our hope and our salvation. If you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, not just gone for a sample but you have savored and drank deeply of the goodness of God, then you can say with David, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. It just floors me that that's how he starts this psalm after what he was through. That the first words out of his mouth in that cave are, I will bless the Lord at all times. Oh, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know. What a testimony. If you can't say that this morning, then maybe, maybe you've never really savored the grace and the mercy of God. And you need to turn from your sin and seek refuge in Him. The testimony of David is one with the testimony of the prophet Jeremiah. Through the Lord's mercy, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Let's pray.